Today we're going to be talking about Mark Fisher. Capitalist realism, is there no alternative? 2009. Fisher was a British academic, author and a teacher. He achieved his initial success blogging with the alias K-Punk in the early 2000s, where he was known for his writings on radical politics, music and pop culture. He wrote, Capitalist Realism is a No Alternative in 2009. He contributed to some other publications, The Wire, The New Statesman. Uh, he's also co-founder of Zero Books, The Weird and The Eerie, which he wrote shortly before his death, and Post-Capitalist Desire, which were the series of lectures that he was giving around that period. They're all very good. They're all available on Audible if you don't have the time to read, and they're all very accessible. He's definitely worth putting some time in if you've not come across him before. We best contextualise, I think, Fisher within this theme of modernity and post-modernity and by modernity I, th I think summarised best as grand narratives or big stories social structures yeah the idea of progress the idea yeah. that the society can overcome the problems that it had and everything and everybody is moving forward in a, in a direction and later theorists around the mid-80s people like Leotard well-known incredulity to meta-narrative we no longer believe in them or other theorists like Giddens will use the word late modernity. The kind of idea is similar, that things are accelerating slightly more now. Can I just ask, why does Leotard have this mistrust of meta-narrative? I think he's making, around that period, he's making a claim around an increased relativism in regard to those arguments. So uh, whereas general belief, I think, society as a, as a whole or, or cultures as a whole had a trust in institutions and authority around the 80s, academically, you start to see that become questioned. And, and what yeah. and the group of thinkers that do that became, I think, retrospectively known as postmodernity or postmodern thinkers. Because I, when you actually look at them, I mean, they're very different in a, in a lot of what they say. But I guess a, a constant idea would be one of one of relativism basically so you have absolute notions of, of truth through modernity towards a breakdown of that within the postmodern. one of the ways i used to try and illustrate modernity to students was to show them these wonderful old colored clips film clips you can find them on youtube of the, the festival of britain uh, 1950 1951 so just i remember it yeah <laughs> You were there. I've seen you on the clip. Yeah, I was. You're that guy selling the balloons. But the Festival of Britain, Wonderful you know, evenings. Which was, <laughs> which was held, held on the site, which is now Battersea Power Station around that area. They cleared this bomb-damaged area, and they tried to cheer everyone up. by Festival of Britain. And you get this very, almost the voice of modernity. You know, that kind of voice, which is, and here we have the science zone. The science zone, we have our brave scientists. Are, yeah, know, the very clear voices like that. Every, every, everyone's picked like that. That's it, something like that. And the children are having a thoroughly good day as they look at nuclear fission. There would be exhibitions there that seems like nuclear power and uh, the, the Skylon, which is a big tower with a thing going up and down there. I mean, they demolished all this stuff. Bits of it survived. The South Bank Centre was built at the same time, modernist mm. architecture. And the overwhelming message was almost anything is scientifically possible. Yeah, well, yeah. We don't believe that anymore, do we? Or if we do, we think science is equally as dangerous. We live this side of atomic bombs. We live this side of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We live this side of, of an awareness that you can actually bugger up the environment. 
Yeah. That's undermined the meta-narrative. The Vietnam War undermined the meta-narrative. Can't we say it's capitalist realism that has really challenged the meta-narrative? You talked about relativism there, so put everything is falling in on the self. So that the whole idea of modernity and authority and it's all fallen in on a confused ego, a confused I, self. We've got nothing to hang our egos on except these disjointed experiences. Fisher is is coming after the, the postmodern, though. So he's engaging with the postmodern arguments about relativism, and I think he goes a step further. If we just pause on, on the modernity aspect for a minute, because I think it's quite relevant, Fisher's argument was it's kind of like the Frankfurt School's critique of modernity. They will argue that one of the problems with modernity, with mass culture, popular culture, or yeah, mass culture, was it's the way in which it brainwashed or ideologically controlled the masses. They were writing uh, sort of after the right. Second World War and they'd seen Nazi propaganda. And they were quite traditional and elitist in many respects because they felt that high culture, so they are, they are hierarchically positioning culture. So you've got high culture, uh, you've got mass culture, popular culture, where they see folk culture as well. So but they're giving it a definite hierarchy. High forms of culture will allow people to think critically about the social world around them. And in mm. so doing, not be passively ingesting mass culture so in amongst that you've then got the later postmodern thinkers and this idea of postmodernism postmodernism as a logic of late capitalism which is an important idea within fisher so what he's saying with, with capitalist realism if you went back a few years you, you could sort of identify modernity you could identify as postmodern relativism but there was still the idea that there were multi-narratives there was still narratives that offered a way to think outside of capitalism now what he's saying is is the new thing that's occurred now and he's, he doesn't claim to have made up the expression capitalism you know he attributes it to people like jameson or uh, zizek's another one that, that's made similar kind of arguments that it's impossible to think outside of capitalism now what the book does is start to address how and why the other forms of narratives are, are no longer relevant we, we just don't even think about and I, and I think his main thrust of the book is almost like a, a stripping away of everything to a kind of pure mechanical outcomes. makes the point that postmodernism was always contrasted and thought about in its relationship to modernity and here he highlights people like Adano who viewed culture in hierarchical terms and as such sort of high culture was still seen as some kind of defense against corrosive effects of mass culture that the Frankfurt School would argue limited the revolutionary potential of the working class. What Jameson points out in his work is that much of modernity's critical potential has now been incorporated into capitalism itself. So earlier critiques of the Frankfurt School's position are, are now incorporated within capitalism. So I like the education model he uses. These kind of arguments without examples are, are quite difficult, aren't they, really? Or difficult to make sense. And what he says is signs and symbols become more important than, than language itself. The business ontology has come into language. So we think in terms of grades, symbols, representation, rather than educational ideas. We're constantly training people. Would you say that Fisher is saying that especially in education and business to a certain extent with all its uh, you know, business babble, 
that it's simulating reality. In the modern, things are real. Your example with with the Festival of Britain, a real belief in the future because there were some tangible things that were moving society forward. We seem to have a breakdown now of all that kind of thinking, and it's being replaced. I think he uses the phrase chains of air. So things, there's nothing Mm. real to it, the real. It's just a simulation. So the bureaucracy that we see in schools, like targets and all these pointless deadlines we have to keep meeting to keep ourselves busy, is all fundamentally pointless because it's fundamentally just a simulation. We're almost pretending to be productive. It doesn't make Mm. any difference to anything or anyone. Is that phrase he uses, all all of his solid melts into PR? You know, (laughs) it doesn't matter now whether things are actual. Yeah. They appear to Boris needs a T-shirt with that one, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just this is uh, quite useful here. So I, I was just flicking through some old stuff here with because uh, he he I think in capitalist realism he talks about Baudrillard quite a lot. But he, he Baudrillard was a uh, in regards to what you're saying here, Dan. I mean, these are four stages that Baudrillard talks about. Mentioned historical stages here about signs and representation. Pretty much what you're saying there. Okay. He says that. Number one, he says, the sign is a reflection of basic reality. So, I mean, any any form of sign here. Uh, For example, scientific knowledge may represent something in the real world. He said, number two, the sign masks or perverts basic reality. The image is a distortion of the truth uh, it purports to represent. For example, the capitalist ideology. Three, a sign masks the absence of basic reality. For example, a religious image of God may mask the fact that God does not exist. And here's the fourth one, which I think is... relevant here the sign bears no relation to any reality whatsoever it is pure simulacrum and i think right yeah perhaps especially within you know i wonder within education to an extent again we're picking on this this education section with fisher is that perhaps the the really the 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 signs and the, the symbols and the meanings become almost meaningless you end up in an economy of grades you end up with a pleasing ofsted Students are trained to engage with the subjects instrumentally in regards to what grades they can have, not in any form of interest in information. The bits where he talks about education are some of yeah. the most some of the most instantly recognisable, and I think that's because oh, yeah. education. And he's he's familiar with with FE, and he's familiar with higher education. Schools reflect the the most absurd things that are going on or the most egregiously unfair things. I mean, I think for much of British history, schools have been analogous to the class system. It is simply the, the class system written into a way of imagining, you know, of, of enacting class system and then trying to imagine that doesn't really exist, which still it clearly does. It struck yeah. me during the pandemic that there was an awful lot of stuff about how unfair the pandemic was being to poorer children, which is absolutely true. It was as if that was a discovery. And the whole of education yeah. system is mitigates against the poor and against the poorer children. It does that anyway. That's what it's almost designed to do. One of the features of education is its unfairness. And yet that is masked by continual emphasis on personal achievement and self-fulfillment and uh, the illusion of it being something that it isn't. You're arguing that uh, education is providing meaningless set of activities and processes that employees and students go through. It doesn't have any substance. Why are we doing this? What, what, what is education for? 
We never talk about that. We always talk about processes and bureaucracy of teaching, but we never talk about the intellectual nature of teaching. That seems to have disappeared completely. One of the things that Fisher draws on is this idea of the big other, the Lacanian big other. And he uses the example of the White Sea Canal project. So in Stalin's Stalin's Russia, they do this great big engineering project, which is a canal uh, because of the necessity to create a propaganda victory. It doesn't actually work. It's too shallow for ships. It never works as a canal, but becomes an example of Soviet brilliance, even though the people that built it know they've been shortchanged on the money and the design is faulty. The supervisors of the people know this. Who in Soviet society didn't know it wasn't just a load of old illusory nonsense, but they all participated yeah. in it because they couldn't draw attention to the to the assumption that out there somewhere was a kind of reality that they weren't referring to, a sort of big other reality. Or, or could we say perhaps they couldn't, like bringing Fisher in, they couldn't imagine a different reality. You know, but all the same. That that's the, he calls it reflexive impotence. So students, okay. you know, we we know things are bad, but we know there is nothing we can do about it. It's almost like a distance there. So they do know, you know, in, in education, they kind of know it's meaningless, a lot of stuff, but all the same, you know, we just do it anyway. Teachers do the same. Students do the same. There is a realisation there. The only way out is imagination, but even imagination is now being brought up through digital experiences and you're not able to have an experience outside of capital. It's a form so of hopelessness almost, isn't it? People who are trapped in it as we all are traveling in this podcast but try and think beyond capitalism is now almost impossible isn't that what fisher is saying we can't think outside of our chains yeah but they're still in there there's a recognition there you know people aren't stupid i mean they they know that the world as it is but all the same we carry on contributing to it because in order for there to be structural change ideology allows you to think you can do anything you want right up to the point of doing it And in so doing, you just carry on. Reflexive intimacy talks about the students have. They kind of know the world's this. They know that it's bad, but but all the same, they just carry on. This new perspective, this uncompromising reality that seeks in some sense to uncover the real world in which we define by an almost Hobbesian war of all against all. This stripping away of myth to a real that is beyond the social fluff of previous generations' cultures is now, Fisher claims, presenting a version of reality stripped back to a hard reality. In a similar gesture, artists of genres such as hip-hop or gangster movies of the late 90s and early 2000s, since Fisher wrote this, music like Drill or Grime and other variants of hip-hop, which prioritise profit and loss, pure capital. They're no longer any form of resistance, but are reflecting the very codes of capitalism itself. This drive towards a reality stripped of any alternative, but presented as just the way it is, or the taken for granted, is capitalist realism. What he does in capitalist realism is that he brings up a lot of examples of the way in which the world functions thinking about ourselves in this this sense of which all other narratives myths or options are stripped away and it's a bit like the example he uses for the modern 
crime, you know, in, in the movie Heat, he uses example there, where the, the, the modern criminal in that sense is, is just a stripped down operative. There's no narrative or fluff around other than pure performance and pure outcome. The same if you look at education now, you have a syllabus, you have a checklist of things that need to be known. Anything outside of that instrumental approach by which people are generally trained, not educated, but trained to think. And the, the problem for that, I think, then, is that we've been almost educated out of the ability to think critically. It's driven by emotion rather than reason. I think that the thing with capitalist realism is the idea that all forms of excess are stripped away and you think you're getting a purer, harder, no social fluff. And it's reflected right. all in popular culture now. It uses the hip-hop example where you no longer music isn't a collective, radical thing that could be used to incite and produce collectivity and universal ideas. Hip-hop reflects really the capitalist ideas of, of profit. But the, the capitalist ideas of profit are masked behind what is a knowing, an apparent knowing cynicism. You know, yeah. so, so we will, we all know that it's, again, we all know that it's a bit of a game. The students know it's a game they have to play in order to pass exams. And the exams themselves are fairly meaningless, but they're the game they have to play. So, um, in, and in popular culture, there's a degree of knowingness about the, the production of, of art itself. So art becomes self-referential. It refers to pastiche versions of other forms of art. It recycles things. But it also, it also, there's a sort of sense in which you shouldn't take us seriously. So we're not really being mm. serious about anything anymore. And that appears to be, it feels like you're therefore more aware than your parents were, more aware than those poor old modernists wandering around the, the festival of Britain, because they didn't realise, as we do, that we are cynically aware of the game we're playing. But we still play the game. Yeah. In this sense, cynicism has become a naturalised form of insight. People imagine that insight, when it is shown, is in the form of cynicism either in art or in the production of culture of all kinds, to be aware of itself and to be aware of the game we're playing, to be aware that, that it is fairly meaningless, is a kind of cynical intelligence. Yeah. And yet cynicism is, is itself corrosive and destructive. And you can see it throughout our society. A sense in which cynicism produces not only hopelessness, but a rejection of any optimism of the ability for society, society to deal with anything. The ultimate cynicism is to say, we're all going to die, what the heck? Uh, in the long run, we'll all be in the grave. That is the life-denying culture of cynical wisdom. If I take nothing seriously, then I can be harmed by nothing. It's a shell. And you see it most evident in young people, students, and again, to sound like an old git, but there's a lot to be cynical about, there's a lot to, a lot to be critical of, and criticism isn't the same of cynicism. Cynicism is a shrug of the shoulders, a abandonment of hope, and above all, a sense in which we are all in this wink-wink, we're all playing the game, aren't we? What it means to be human, both how we engage with broader society, but crucially our own innermost thoughts and desires, are now understood in a framework structured through a business ontology with its signs, symbols, its targets and its grades. mentions this idea within education of repressive hedonia 
yes. like a, a sense that something is missing that students have. And then the students are stuck between subjects of disciplinary institutions, of old education, as opposed to as consumers as they are in modern education. Well, are students the product or are they the customers? Yeah. Are the consumers? So when you go into school, are you delivering for the consumer, i.e. the students, or are you turning them into something else? It's, not, it's unclear. And they're, caught, they're caught in some sort of void between the two. And it's, ter- it's a terrible tension for them to be in. But I love that phrase, though, that Hedonia, that I think he's drawing on, it's either Marcuse or Adorno's idea of the euphoria of unhappiness. The desperation to be continually in a, in a state of euphoria. In the capitalist real society, this is what you need to take. You need to take this pill, this pill, this pill. But nobody asks why are uh, huge swathes of, pop- of the population suddenly experiencing lower serotonin levels. We're living in these atomized existences that don't have any sense of connection and togetherness. Yes. And it's mm. those connections, well, those togetherness, which we, we talked about in the modern, but you had a sense of progress and moving forward. I think that on the one hand, stress became more and more developed as an idea that students were under. I thought, well, obviously, why they're under stress is because what we're doing to them, because this system has yeah. become increasingly instrumental, increasingly bureaucratized. I'm talking about the madness of education. Was it one of the local schools near us that was going to have the students wearing different colored badges depending on what their outcomes, what their predicted target grades were? <laughs> So you're an A target, you're a B target, you're a C target. All this kind of nonsense, madness and, and stress were placed on students. And it's also, and determinism. On the one hand, they were implored to work hard to make the best of what they could, but somehow it was no good because their target grades just they couldn't. So no wonder an epidemic of stress and anxiety is probably a product of our society. But schizophrenia isn't. You know, that, that's, an, mm. that's an imbalance in the brain. I mean, it's not, not the first time that a social scientist has looked at the relationship between mental health and social structures. I mean, Durkheim was, was the first one I know of to do that was with his study of suicide. Fisher is making sort of sim- similar claims yeah. to that. I mean, yes, Rich, it's almost a social science cliche that modern society makes you sick. And if you Google modern society makes you sick, you see multiple discussions of modern subjectivity, the influence of meritocracy, consumerism, um, individualism, or even uh, the absence of God. From, and, and that secular society, all the you know, secular society gets the blame, consumer society gets the blame, and so on. And indeed, I think, and I absolutely have been arguing, that I think schools often do, in fact, schools do contribute to the mental health crisis we're seeing in children. And there is a mental health crisis. I mean, we can't know in the past, you look back into the past, you can't know whether people in the med- medieval times were mentally ill. I mean, they were maybe terrified by the devil's a form of mental illness. And a lot of the reasons we might characterise a greater mental illness today is we, we, we look at society, we look at mental illness differently to how people did in the past. I mean, you know, people, people to talk to God in the past, they were saints. You know, people talk to God today, they're, they're uh, schizophrenics. However, however, consumerism leads to, you know, affluenza, that idea of the kind of the sickness, the absence that can be caused by competition and continual comparison, the, the obsessive constant checking of social media and does certainly make you depressed. Um, and young people, as of never before, have had the terrifying curse of being able to actually apparently see how popular they are. And that mostly makes them fairly unhappy. However, I reject the idea of mental illness being 
purely socially produced. It certainly can be socially triggered, it can be socially exacerbated, it can certainly, depression and anxiety can be products of our society more today than ever before. But as I say, schizophrenia is, well, schizophrenia largely isn't. And, you know, if people have mental illness and profound depression and acute depression, take the pills, you know, seek medical help. It's a medical condition. I wouldn't want anyone to imagine that it's sort of, it's a problem of consumerism. Because the problem with that is once you make mental illness a problem of modern society which certainly to some extent it is once you make it generally a problem then you're denying its existence then people become either they need to sort of uh, seek some sort of therapy where they uh, give their life meaning or they attempt to want less soon, soon enough some japanese woman's going to be coming around your house telling you to throw away most of your stuff and that will make you happy but actually if you're suffering with mental illness Take the pills. So Fisher is developing this idea. He says that for, for Jameson, uh, postmodernity is the cultural logic of late capitalism, and it's dominated by pastiche and relativism and revivalism. Much of his critique, though, was written in the 1980s, and it was a response and reflection on a world in which there were still viable alternatives to capitalism. The starting point is the starting point you make there, Richard, which is Frederick Jameson. It's easier to conceive of the end of the world than it is a socialist revolution or an alternative to capitalism. That's a lot of the theme of capitalist realism is that idea, isn't it? That it's it's become the, the all-encompassing ideology of our times around which it's almost impossible to think. I think the question there is how do we view ourselves now? I think it's become worse now. I, I think at least when he wrote that, I think there were still points of rupture, if you like, or breaks. I think in, in the last 10 years, it's just become even worse. And I think, you know, I think we were talking before about his experiences in, in FE. So Mark Fisher was an FE lecturer for a lot of the time, teacher in FE. And for those, for those who don't know the British education system, that is further education, which is effectively a kind of colleges devoted towards academic, but also largely more vocational courses. Schools in this country have gone through a radical change in our lifetime. And in many of the things he points to, it had started to happen first in FE. The things like the dominance of data uh, and treating education like it was some kind of neoliberal commercial enterprise. That you, had yeah, to, I mean, that's you had to get students on seats and you had to achieve targets. He talks about consciousness being stripped away by culture and a dominant culture being a kind of business, a business speak, isn't it? A business discourse or, or, or ontology, or just a way of, of thinking about everything yeah. in terms of, of competition, profit, loss. It frames all aspects of reality, so you can't think outside of it. Well, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I, I think, think that's the point. You can't, you can't think outside of your senses. And is capitalism becoming almost like an extra human sense? Yes, it's like there's hearing, uh, smell, sight, uh, touch, and now kind of will it sell? The sense that things, are they marketable? It's kind of the tick-tockerization of our senses. You know, will this, will this small snippet of my experience be appealing to others? Well, I think that's what sort of, you know, as is expressed in something like TikTok or Facebook, the presentation of ourselves in a market sense. Yeah, you, I, think his, I think his argument is that, is that yeah, you can't think rea not only reality, but but all forms of subjectivity yourself outside of capitalist regime. But isn't he drawing on uh, Althusser? 
and the and the ideological state apparatus the, the idea in left thinking that yeah. somehow marx the old marxists as it were marx yeah. <laughs> the, yeah the original marxists like marx yeah would have argued that it, the um the false consciousness is a sort of facade through mm. which you can break you know when when the working classes achieve consciousness they're conscious of their yeah. state they're conscious of their exploitation you're going to get the revolution and, you, and that's either going to happen because of education or or because of reform or because of revolution mm. marx isn't dead clear on this but then that then no, that's the that's the snake that, that argument but then altazer reformulates that as an all-encompassing ideological framework around which it defines your identity you become the subject your your the your personal subjectivity is is constructed by the ideological framework around you from which you can you cannot escape and that's i think that's I mean, what marx he's from that tradition isn't he he's a post he's a post marxist i guess our gramsci as well though those kinds of thinkers part of that tradition why haven't the the worker overthrown the capitalist well that's the big problem of marx isn't it that's the big problem of the left it's the big leftist left problem is wh- when's the revolution happening and why yeah, hasn't yeah. it's almost necessary now to to think about anything within the capitalist framework and and you can't think out of it and, and any thought you have out of it is almost incorporated back into it i mean i i think he does a very good job of, of overviewing the stuff on bureaucracy and specifically education i think is is absolutely spot on all of our experiences in that area i mean it just mirrors exactly that the the obsession with data and how there's a gap between what you imagine an education being really it's been replaced by a form of training as educators we never talk about intellectual pursuits or the interest of a subject it's just processes and data he talks about foucault's disciplinary regime of regulation in in that sense internalization of that and he talks about a kind of internal police and a shifting from from an external uh, surveillance to a kind of internal policing this then being a controlling mechanism we we become like control addicts or the system does yeah well you, you and i you and i in the past Long before we ever started mm. podcasting, Richard, I had these conversations with you. I think Dan, we might this might I've talked about. It's a thing we've talked about. I know. Of, yeah. is, the, is the way that stu- the way the instrumentalism that sense in which there's a, a natural instrumentalism about students because in a sense they see it, they know what the game is in schools, and they know what the game mm. is. The game is to succeed by by playing the game of which you can't escape. The game is numbers. and progress and grades and symbols isn't it yeah grades you play that game through learning the tricks of the trade the tricks of the exam I mean, the number of books that are published now and they say things like getting a grade a or how to achieve top marks in your essay that gap between this economy of symbols and grades and the sort of instrumental thinking that now goes into education with Yeah. ideas themselves and and argues this is why it- I'll bet we've all heard or or probably even used I'm sure we're we've been part of this ourselves we we are all, all instruments of the system mm. I'm sure we've used the phrase or heard the phrase marketable skills and we've said it to students how the importance of acquiring marketable skills and students have nodded and they've looked at unchallenging acceptance and we've said it as if it were simply as if you should drink more water or you should avoid standing in the sun too long it's just sense simple sensible advice 
acquire marketable skills. And I think there are two things going on here. Not only is there the definition of education, of learning itself as the acquisition of skill, mm. as a fairly narrow, fairly reductive vision of what it is about learning that you should learn. You know, things are applicable, therefore measurable, therefore functional. It's the functionalization of learning. And the second thing I think that's going on, in other words, we don't talk about rather airy-fairy things like beauty and um, creativity in, in the sense unless they're skills of creativity. It's measurable. As if you're given a number or defined as an accessible skill, an accessible objective. And the second thing I think that's going on is a, the confluence of market ontology with learning. Skills are think, not things of beauty anymore. I mean, you're only telling the, the great artists of the past that, that they need marketable skills. I, I know that Michelangelo still had to sell stuff, and he was very lucky if he had some a pope buying his statues, etc., etc. But nonetheless, today, students look at themselves and reflect upon themselves as marketable. And as I said before, not only is this this sort of um, TikTokization, this is the unfortunate generation that can not only view themselves as marketable, as that is just purely common sense, they need to acquire the skills, but also actually market themselves. In other words, TikTok is the marketing of yourself, your personality, marketed, put out there, something about yourself, some moment on TikTok or on on Instagram, which will be evaluated by the likes and by the number of downloads, the number of followers, in the, in other words, demand. It, it'll be your identity evaluated by by the level of consumption, and not that capitalism can in any way predict what marketable skills actually will be marketable. That's the paradox. That's the big lie. You go into classrooms and you tell kids to acquire marketable skills mm. with no real sense that we can predict 10 years in the future, what actually would be marketable. One of the strengths of capitalism is its unpredictability, its nimbleness, it moves quickly, it adapts quickly. You know, you teach kids computer programming, you can teach kids some kind of emphasis on engineering when that's not the way the economy is going. It's turning into a service economy, it's turning into a soft skills economy. Where creativity and the ability to think alone and think creative and think critically much better for non-marketable things like the health of society. If, if kids left school with few skills but the ability to think critically, I think we'd be living in a better world. I think that would be healthier for society. You know, I don't really want to live in a world of cynical, market-aware, maybe even skillful people who aren't particularly critical of the world they live in, accept it, embrace it, are cynical of it. You know, they, they, they vote for Trump. They vote, they vote for cynicism. The book develops its critique through, among other things, readings of film, music, education, managerialism and bureaucracy. He later defined it in a, another lecture that capitalist realism could be thought of as a, a receding of consciousness in culture. It's a realism stripped of any reason beyond its own logic of productivity. I mean, I love the bit he talks about. Talks yes. about oh, yes, he's just got the headphones on, yeah. Even and, though it represents a symbolic separation between the teacher and the, and the pupil. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of how we've got to this position whereby we seem to have 
emptied humanity of all things which are sacred and you know i don't know how we've got into this position i'll write it down that's quite good he said capitalism this is fisher writing capitalism brings with it a massive desacralization of culture it's a system no longer governed by a transcendent law on the contrary it dismantles all such codes which made sense with all the foibles and difficulties you know, you could pit your um, culture against something else. Now, there doesn't seem to be any culture at all, except, as you're saying, just um, the language of productivity, which isn't actually very productive anyway. It's a simulation of product. That, that stuff is very Frankfurt school, isn't it? It's, it's very much the idea of the culture industry. Yeah. The, and the, the endless reproduction and the, and the pastiching and the mining the past and the collapsing of kind of creative energy is he's, he's very he's yeah. very he's very frankfurt school and now society doesn't have a past doesn't have a present and that, as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast definitely doesn't have a future that's why there's no movement towards the future within the thing that's fundamentally meaningful and we just go through the motions of bureaucracy and as he says that you know we're, we're, we're kind of trapped in these chains of air we can't work out our way out of it during the modern modern age people could imagine something other communism yeah. whatever it was religion yeah but it's moved moved so much further into the fabric of everything mm. that we can't make sense to things so that's right. where it's going beyond the postmodern. i think there for me dan what you what you're mapping out there you know is it within capitalist realism there is a sense that there is a certainty found but it's found within bureaucracy bureaucracy and uh, whether or not we're talking about business or education or there, there is almost for people now there's a a hard kernel of truth within a material world whereby you can make progress but as you say it's not a, you, i don't think it's you can't progress. be outside of that though no. well, well no but no, it, no. but it presents itself as progress doesn't it an a grade yeah, a b grade a bonus a target the key word is it presents itself so it's like yeah, it's yeah like that's what you're saying, virtual, yeah. virtual existence it's not it's not real that's what I was saying about cynicism is the new, is the new kind of awareness. You know, you're cynical about the, you know about the production of movies. You know about how they, you're critical of the art form. You're, you're aware of the, what's going on. So there's a sort of postmodern cynicism, which is presented as, as awareness. I'm trying to argue very badly here, but I think that it's gone beyond postmodernism, where there is that air of irony and cynicism, like we had in the early 90s, you know, it's ironic, yeah. to the point that it's not ironic anymore, that this is actually the way things are. If Fisher makes the point, is there's been no real progress in terms of culture and music since, you know, since the early 90s. And he does that yeah. time travel experiment, doesn't he? So if you took a, a popular song from, you know, 2020, and transposed it to 1991, uh, there wouldn't be shock horror. People think, well, what's this? I might give this a listen. Um, yeah. In other words, he says we're living in a 20th century world within the 21st century. There's been no real big movements in culture. We've cast our sense of movement through history. The, fu the future has been... The future's been cancelled. The future has yeah. been cancelled, yes. The cancellation yeah. of the future. It's truly the end of history. <laughs> you know, the end of cultural history. One way in which he would define capitalist realism 
is consciousness deflation, the receding of consciousness in, in culture. He, the three areas he talks about are a reduction in class consciousness, so an eroding of Absolutely. class identity from the sort of 60s, yeah. 70s, you know, the, yeah. the erosion of the trade union. I mean, the, the next one on, on he talks about, I think it's quite an interesting one, psychedelic consciousness. Psychedelic idea allowed the possibility for alternative realities, which was kind of ingrained through the, the 60s and 70s. John, you mentioned earlier about cynicism, because capitalist realism is really, it's a capitalist ideology, isn't it? It, it just, it's cynical. It just pronounced the world, this is just the way it is. It's, there is no ideology. That's yeah. the purest ideological statement. In his, oh, we're being pragmatic. This is simply the way we have to accept things should be. We see it in schools. It's got first time every time, zero tolerance. Mossbourne School. So Mossbourne School in, in London, which is hyper-disciplined. Students chant before every lesson that they won't interrupt any other student. They will work for their best. They all wear crisp little uniforms. They walk, they walk one side of a corridor one way and one side of a corridor another way. And I was thinking about this, I thought, well, if you have to do that to students, what is it that we're not saying about our society? What you're saying there, the, the idea of a disciplined school is more of a modernist idea where everyone's kind of having to give up their own individuality, their own uniforms, they have to follow a code of discipline. That we're back to the Festival of Britain with that. Well, yeah, Dan, that's a, I mean, it's a good moment to talk about the, the two faces of modernism. And modernism, unfortunately, is the serried ranks of the still-helmeted fascists. And modernism is also the optimism and belief in progress. I mean, there's, there are different forms of belief in progress. The perfectibility of mankind is a sort of dark version of the idea that science can solve everything. So eugenics was a form of modernism, just as... The progressive education of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, the comprehensive movement in Great Britain, the move away from school uniforms, the move, from, the move towards more liberal attitudes to education, were, were ultimately modernists. But they were, I think they were liberal modernists, they were optimistic modernists. They believed that you could create schools that were, where students would embrace the joy of learning. It was idealistic, but then, it could, then that was modern. Modernism is about idealism just as modernism is about fascistic idealism as well. It is the two faces of modernism. But the capitalist realist school is treats the child as a, as a consumer. No, I, 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 so, I, and I... And I think that's why I say things have become indifferent. That when, when you've got schools with uniform and discipline, the stuff you're outlining there, even though it doesn't feel like it or sound like it, there is a care at the centre of things. At the same time, which, the school is, commands you to be successful at the same time as determining that you, that you can't. So the system works against itself. The school has to fail most students. There's a brilliant, brilliant bit in Mark Fish where he talks about the, the use of the satisfactory is no longer satisfactory. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. so true that one. Classified as satisfactory, that's a failure. You're implored to be better than good, better than ordinary, better than good. In fact, better than good's no good anymore. There must, you must be outstanding. But we can't all be outstanding, and we know we can't all be outstanding. Satisfactory is good. I'll do that. Yeah, I used to say that. What's wrong with satisfactory? Can I draw a parallel here with that talk in schools about endlessly improving yourself and trying to make yourself better? And you could see the same thing in business. It's that part of business ontology. It's part of that endless growth. 
everyone and everything. This yeah. idea of endlessly self-improving and making yourself better. And now the only thing you have, the only criticism you might hear in public is you're not being very positive to join in this mantra of improvement, which doesn't have any reference point, doesn't have any uh, bearings, which is making us all go um, bananas. Within capitalist realism, I think that there's the idea of, he uses the word indefinite postponement. So it's not necessarily immediate. Part of the, the bureaucratic web, which is the education for students and for, and for well, the whole educational kind of paradigm, if you like, it's, it's set up to, to offset. You, you don't actually arrive at the place. It's, he makes it point, doesn't he? He uses the, is it the Kafka, the old regime of Foucauldian surveillance. Uh, but then yeah. he uses the other, the, the lose version, where he talks about the internal police. So there is a postponed, it's not necessarily a, an immediacy there. There's, there's a, a never-never uh, within. I this, totally agree with that, yeah. I, I, we're always moving towards outstanding. So in, in, sorry, John, just quickly, just within that, it's where he does that lovely bit where he talks about how we now see homeworking, work from home, training from home, you know, this idea that technology now is just to engage in this prolonged postponement. So we participate yeah. perfectly aware that it's all a load of old nonsense. I think a certain generation do, but I think Fisher makes this point. Uh, generations that have been brought up on the internet probably don't have that capacity to know that the system is defining them is nonsensical because they don't have any architecture, which is the point of capitalist realism, to express something which is other. Now, everything is instant, everything is in your hand, all times are in your hand as well. You can look at a YouTube video from 1970, the next second be looking at something from 2010. Uh, everything is disjointed. I agree with that to an extent, and I, I, but I, I disagree with a lot as well. I mean, I, I didn't start my education formally, I was 26, you know, I, I, I didn't have anything like that. And it was 26, 27, I suppose, I started studying, went back and started studying then. Now, my reasons for doing that were purely that I just wanted to know more. I knew I was a pod carrier and a ground worker. I didn't know much right, stuff. Yeah. Now, it's easy to be dismissive with the internet and YouTube and these kinds of things and see them as kind of web that you have to get hooked into. I, I find it, I think it's a massive educational tool. Mark Fisher, a load of his lectures, all of his books, everything's there online. And I think that students do find this stuff out. And there is still space there, I think is what I'm trying to say. As dismissive as he is with all of this stuff. And maybe thinking outside of capitalism, it's, it's, diff it's difficult within the, the institutions. His main point is you cannot think outside of capitalism. We have a we have a memory. I sound like Moses here. We we have a, <laughs> we have a memory of of an alternative universe. We we could compare our memories to uh, what's going on now. But if you were born in the year two thousand, or mm. let's say. 2007 when my daughter was born unless you've got people telling you that there was once another world which wasn't digital or entirely all pervasive uh, and timeless it's quite hard to hang any ideas uh, upon something which might be seen as other can i recommend youtube <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Yes, the irony. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Come around my I, house. I know. I could do a ba- I could do a simple thing like change a change a loo or something, but I couldn't put underfloor heating in even with YouTube. So I'm, the the example is silly, but I'm taking the point that that if you, you can have the tools, but if you don't have the wherewithal, you end up not being able to make use of those tools. They can see that the things are absurd. They can, they can be cynical about things. Everything is all pervasive. Yes, so I, the I, idea I, of being cynical, is, I, I don't, I, I just don't think, uh, I think that's a, that's a dying art, being cynical and being satirical. If you, if we say that we're looking at sort of cynicism as something like a, an awareness of the truth, there's a part in Mark Fisher where he says that, that um, when he was a teacher or lecturer, they were told they had to produce log books, the departmental logs of their improvement. And we, says the teachers in his court, in his lo- they're writing these log books. And the head of the department says, oh, but we're not, we've got to improve our log books because they're insufficiently self-critical. <laughs> so, we, so we're going to find ways we're failing to write those down. And then he says, well, don't worry, because no one ever reads any of these anyway. So we're participating exactly. in a absurd bureaucracy. They all laugh. That's that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, you know. It's, yeah, and that's the cynicism of students. I think they know it's sort of absurd, but they have to do it. Mm. I, I disagree with that. I don't think they think it's absurd. I think that this is the way things are. That's why they're investing in their futures. Or maybe they look back at the modernist optimism of the past and they see it for what it was—an illusion of a different kind that we hoped education would change the world and they see that the world just carries on that you say you might as well win at the game even if you know it's a game which i contend they do know it's a game still you know here we are in our podcast and in our educational careers attempting to do something different and uh, if we can through the medium of this podcast and through our own understanding promote a sense of not cynicism but optimistic analysis or optimistic criticism i think you can accept that there are alternative points of view without that rendering you into inaction i think you can make healthy skepticism without being cynical i think skepticism and criticism and evaluating the difference between strong arguments and weak arguments knowing that knowledge is based on evidence not the same as opinion that's the way out that's how we'll get out of this when we can look honestly at the world without retreating from it well then we can think ourselves outside capitalism maybe you have been listening to the spinoza triad in which myself john gibbs dr richard miller and dan roland have been exploring the ideas of mark fisher and his book capitalist realism if you've enjoyed this episode, the Spinozas, please look back at some of our previous episodes. You can also find us on our website or join the Facebook site. If you have comments or suggestions for future episodes, please contact us. I hope you enjoyed it. We certainly enjoyed making it. realism is not an original coinage. What is new about my use of the term is the more expansive, even exorbitant meaning that I ascribe to it. 
capitalist realism, as I understand it, cannot be confined to the quasi-propagandistic way in which advertising functions. It's more like a pervasive atmosphere conditioning not only the production of culture, but also the regulation of work and education, and acting as a kind of invisible barrier constraining thought and action. If capitalist realism is so seamless, and if current forms of resistance are so hopeless and impotent, where can an effective challenge come from? A moral critique of capitalism, emphasising the way in which it leads to suffering, only reinforces capitalist realism. Poverty, famine and war can be presented as an inevitable part of reality. While the hope that these forms of suffering could be eliminated, easily painted as naive utopianism, capitalist realism can only be threatened if it is shown to be in some way inconsistent or untenable, if, that is to say, capitalism's ostensible realism turns out to be nothing of the sort. By contrast with their forebears, the British students of today appear to be politically disengaged, while French students can still be found on the streets protesting against neoliberalism, British students, whose situation is incompatibly worse, seem resigned to their fate. But this, I want to argue, is not a matter of apathy, but of reflexive impotence. They know that things are bad, but more than that, they know they can't do anything about it. But that knowledge, that reflexivity, is not a passive observation of an already existing state of affairs. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I challenged one student about why he always wore headphones in class. He replied that it didn't matter because he wasn't actually playing any music. In another lesson, he was playing music at a very low volume, through the headphones, without wearing them. When I asked him to switch them off, he replied that even he couldn't hear it. Why wear the headphones without playing music, or play music without wearing the headphones? because the presence of the phones on the ears, or the knowledge that the music is playing, even if he couldn't hear it, was a reassurance that the Matrix was still there within reach. Besides, in a classic example of interpassivity, if the music was still playing, even if he couldn't hear it, then the player could still enjoy it on his behalf. The use of the headphones is significant. Pop is experienced not as something which could have impacts on public space, but as a retreat into a private consumer bliss, a walling up against the social. Mark Fisher, Capitalist Realism.